name. Amen. Well, there is a regular conversation that happens in my house every single Monday. And I hope that I am not the only person who experiences this, and I would bet that I'm not. I tend to do the shopping every Monday. I go to the grocery store. Uh, Monday is my normal day off, and I get food for the week. Uh, and, and my wife, Amanda, and I keep uh, an Apple's reminder list going of all the things we need from the store. Uh, did anybody else? There's got to be some way of figuring out what, what the other person in the relationship needs, right? Uh, here's the thing, though. I don't always remember everything on the list. And actually, I would say that 75% of the time, uh, I forget something. And that's just a guess. And so the conversation ensues most Mondays. Amanda asks me, did you get X? And I think about it for a minute. And in my head, I picture walking down the grocery store aisle, looking at the item on the shelf. And then my mind wandered and I forgot over and over and over again. Memory is such a weird thing. It's such an odd thing. You think it should be so easy, don't you? There are folks who have good memories. Unfortunately, Amanda is one of those people who has a really good memory. But it, for people who have good memories, it's almost inconceivable that something simple would be forgotten. But in my mind, Something that never forgets anything, that's a computer. That's a robot. Humans are so much more complicated than that. We bring a whole bunch of stuff, imagination, multitasking, preoccupation to the table. And so we forget. We forget things. So there's a command that you will, a refrain that you will hear in the Old Testament, and we're going to hear it today. It goes like this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there. So it turns out, we're going to hear, it's not just groceries that people forget. It's actually our true nature. The reality that we are children of God that we forget. Now, we may say we know, but the way that we sometimes live our lives is as though it is all up to us, as though we are simply what we, what we can accomplish. And in so many ways, our lives don't testify to a dependence on God, to the reality of God. And so we're going to talk about the Sabbath for the next several weeks. And we're going to be talking about how the intention of the Sabbath is actually to reset our lives. Because Sabbath is not just about resting so you can get back to work. It's actually about remembering who we are and remembering who we are not. Which is what we're going to learn in our scripture today, which is from the book of Deuteronomy. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. May God bless this reading. Well, there's this really short book that I pick up from time to time by the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann. It's called Sabbath as Resistance. Maybe it's 100 pages long. But in it, Brueggemann tries to explain the importance of the Sabbath commandment as having more to do than just personal rest or fealty to God. Sometimes it's easier to read the commands and we go, well, God said it, I do it. Uh, but there's more to it. There's a much broader scope. So when the author of Deuteronomy ends this command with the remember statement, they're including it in the much larger story of what God has done. So Brueggemann writes this, the Sabbath commandment is drawn into the Exodus narrative. For the God who rests is also the God who emancipates from slavery and consequently from the work system of Egypt who require and legitimate that work. So for Brueggemann, this is what the commandments are actually about. God has rescued the people from their slavery in Egypt. And now they are trying really hard to be their own people, the chosen people, the people God wants them to be in order that they can be a blessing and be blessed. But all these people know how to do is live in Egypt. All they know how to do is live like those in Egypt. And what was it like in Egypt? It was a lot of work, like nonstop work. Brueggemann recounts the time that the Israelites spent in Egypt in the Exodus story when Pharaoh commanded the people to work harder and harder, even going as far in one passage to demand that they produce more brick with less straw. Throughout the story, we can imagine there wasn't very much rest as the people continued to serve Pharaoh's economy, to build storehouses, to store up Pharaoh's wealth. Brueggemann writes, we can imagine moreover that the Egyptian gods also never rested. Because of their commitment to the aggrandizement of Pharaoh's system for the glory of Pharaoh, surely rebounded to the glory of the Egyptian gods. So we can imagine now the Israelites are out of Egypt. They are out of the economy of Pharaoh. They don't have to live that way anymore. They worship a God who provides. And yet there's this old saying that I'm gonna alter a little bit. You can take the Israelites out of Egypt, but you don't always get the Egypt out of the Israelites. Even as they get into the wilderness, we hear in the story that they get worried and they, some of them even demand 
to go back to Egypt where they had to work really hard, but at least there was food. They weren't worried about starving. They don't remember what God has done for them. They don't remember the promises of the one who heard their cry and rescued them. They think they are on their own and that only by working nonstop and the only way they have known can they provide for themselves. They are forgetting who their God is. Their God is not the God of Pharaoh. Their God is not the God of endless accumulation and wealth. Their God is not the God of money. Their God is the one who rescued them from slavery, who rescued them from the work economy that said there could be no rest. And now they need to remember They need the Apple Reminders app. But how can they do that? And this is where the commandments come in. God gives them these commands that tell them how they ought to live with one another. Some of them are about how to treat God. Have nothing above God. Don't create idols. And some of them are about behavior towards one another. Don't steal. Don't murder. And then right in the middle right up there with there shall only be one God, right up there with don't kill people, is the Sabbath. Do not work one day a week. God wants them to remember they are not created to only work. They are not created to store up for themselves treasures, especially not at the expense of others. They are rather the chosen people. And as those God has chosen, they are called to rest. They just forget. They need to remember to reset, to become new. And so God tells them to keep the Sabbath holy, not just because they are human and need rest, like we all need rest, but to remember who they are and who they are not. It's really easy for us to think that we are so far beyond these problems, but again, the only things that don't ever forget are robots. We're all people. We do somehow sometimes forget who we are. And I think it's understandable. Just like the Israelites, we live in a world that sometimes likes to instill in us memories that run counter to the ways of God. We live in a world that continually reminds us that we are simply what we make of ourselves. And if we're not careful, we forget who our source is, God. There's been this trend over the last few decades that calls for folks to craft an identity that sounds an awful lot like Israel's time in Egypt. Um, It goes by the name grind culture or hustle culture. You may have heard this before. Um, Lou Nathaniel in a blog in 2019 wrote, grind or hustle culture is a culture of raw achievement where longer and longer hours are not just the norm, they're the metric for success. And I'll see these videos on, on Facebook or YouTube or wherever where somebody will say, I work 80 hours a week to get the life I want, as though it's bragging 
And so working 80 hours a week is, is as admirable as they think it is. It comes largely out of Silicon Valley, where for years now there has been this focus on work. People not only work for longer hours, but they brag about it. In a New York Times article from around the same time, Aaron Griffith goes even a step for, further, linking this new intense work ethic to spirituality. She writes this, perhaps we've all gotten a little hungry for meaning. Participation in organized religion especially among, is falling, especially among American millennials. In San Francisco, I've noticed that the concept of productivity has taken on an almost spiritual dimension. Techies here have internalized the idea rooted in the Protestant work ethic that work is not something you do to get what you want, but the work itself is all. Therefore, any life hack or company perk that optimizes their day, allowing them to fit in even more work is not just desirable, but inherently good. We live in this culture where people are working more and more and more, and some of them are working more and more and more because they think that their value is tied morally, spiritually, to work, to doing more, to getting more done. And so many people are trying to figure out their meaning in life. They're trying to figure out their worth. And I wonder if a lot of people don't remember the God who calls us to Sabbath, who calls us to rest. They remember instead the messages of a culture that says you are on your own. Your work is all you have. And how are they gonna remember? I keep saying they, how are we going to remember? That's, this is one of the tricks I think that the church falls prey to. Churches that, that have faced decline over the last few decades uh, often want more programs. They want more for people to do. There's this irony. There are less people to do things, and so we think, well, we should have more things to do. It doesn't quite line up. But people lament that families are prioritizing other events like youth soccer on Sunday mornings, which... To be fair, kids are absolutely overworked. I think that's inarguable at this point. But sometimes the church falls prey to thinking not, oh, kids need a break, but rather, I'd rather they spent their time doing our things rather than I wish they would rest. About a decade ago, a book came out, another book that I come back to regularly. It's called Slow Church. And the book was actually a response to the, this over-programmed congregation that asks folks to do more and more. And if you're familiar at all with food culture, you'll know Slow Church is a playoff of the slow food movement. So the slow food movement has propped up over the last few decades and it tried to push back against what it called the McDonaldization of cuisine. Right? Easy, fast, efficient cookie cutter, you can go to a McDonald's anywhere and it looks kind of the same. So the slow food movement wanted people to be a little bit more intentional with eating. It wanted them to eat in their immediate culture, in local sources. It wanted to focus on 
ecological sustainability and a slower, more deliberate pace. You can go to McDonald's and get a burger in a minute or two. You go to a slow food restaurant and you might be there for an hour before you get served. But the food comes from a place that is more sustainable, more intentional. And so the book Slow Church wanted to draw on this philosophy to help guide the future of the church. The author writes, slow food and other slow movements hold important lessons for the American church. They compel us to ask ourselves tough questions about the ground our faith communities have ceded to the cult of speed. And they invite all of us, clergy, theologians, and lay people, to start exploring and experimenting with the possibilities of slow church, not as another growth strategy, but as a way of reimagining what it means to be communities of believers gathered and rooted in particular places at a particular time. Put another way, what if church was a place where you could rest, where you could reset, where you can remember that you are, before you're anything else, a beloved child of God? Of course, we are the place where we gather every week to remember. This is the reason we sing songs of praise, because we have heard God's voice. We have experienced a God who is good, a God who has, has provided. That's even why we listen to scripture. Because it's the story of a God who has been faithful. And a God who will continue to be faithful. And we gather to remember that Jesus prepared a table and made an invitation to all of those in need of nourishment, not just physically, though there was real hunger to be fed at that table, but spiritually, that those who wondered what is it all about could remember the power of God's table to reset our spirits and the foundation of the gospel. And that's what Sabbath is all about. Remembering why we exist, what we exist for. We don't exist for endless work. Even though the world may want us to think that. Rather, we exist because of the love of a God who decided to rest. And there is power in the rest. And it's not the power to get more done. It's the power to reset our identity, to ground ourselves not in the gods of accumulation, but in the God who rescues us from economies that demand more and more work. So this week, I encourage you, remember who you are. Rest. Take a nap. It will be an act of faith to remember a God who is good because we all need to remember that.